I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up there. We will be, uh, we're starting a new chapter. That's kind of exciting. We're pushing right through, like we're making big headway, right? So uh, somebody told me the other day, it was like two Sundays ago, we uh, arrived at our second year anniversary in Luke. And so I don't, I, don't, I don't watch calendars that close. So I guess if we have, we have, but we should finish it this year, not 2017 the school year. Sometime around, sometime in 2018, I think we're going to finish. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But anyway, so Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 today, we're going to be studying the second of two salvation stories. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and just before he gets there, as he's walking into or approaching, I should say, as he's approaching Jericho, he comes in contact with a blind man who cries out for mercy, and Jesus doesn't just heal him of his physical ailment. He he, he, he heals him spiritually. He brings to him salvation. The man wanted physical healing, and he received much more than that. We see him saved. Well, then, then the next thing we see happen is, is what we're going to study today. The second of two stories of salvation, we're going to see Zacchaeus uh, in, in the moment in which Jesus saves him. But as we do, I just want to kind of set the stage. I want us kind of thinking about it. Um, and, and, and you'll see why in just a second. But I, I just want you to think about what it is you think of when you think of your story of salvation. Not, not, not the gospel. Not that It's not wrong to think of that. I'm, I'm actually would be uh, excited for you to think of that. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. Please think on that when you think of your salvation. But, but as it becomes personal to you, like what do you think of? What's, what's the thing you think of? Now, I, don't, I can't prove this scientifically unless you want to do a poll and we all do a raise of hands, show of hands, that kind of thing. I, I can't prove it scientifically, but it's been my experience most often when we stop to think of salvation, we think of salvation in the terms of which we're intimately involved with it. For example, some people might, when, when asked the question, what is it, what, what, what is it about salvation or, or what do you think of when you think of being saved? And so, some people may, many people actually may think of that moment where they trusted Christ and they believed that when they trusted Christ and repented of sin. So, so it's, uh, you know, you're sharing your testimony and it's that moment that everybody thinks about, that moment in time where I trusted him and repented of sin and, and that, that was when I was saved. And for some people that may be the thing that comes to mind. For others of you, it may be, it may be the process of sanctification, the, 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 the work of God in you to grow you in faith, the work of God in you to, to increase your repentance so you're turned more fully from your sin, trusting more fully in Christ. For some of you, you think of salvation, you may not even think of the present day. You may be looking off into the future, the hope that you have that, that one day you're going to enter into, physically enter into his kingdom, a place where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no shame, and there is no pain. You're looking forward to that day. And that's what you think of when you think of salvation, that moment that you're going to be able to step into his presence without any kind of distance or separation, and you will be with him forever. Now, I think, I think that most of us would, would think of those times that we're most intimately involved, that most directly affect us. But how often do we think of salvation, let's say, from God's side of things, from God's perspective, or what God has been doing to make it all happen? Let me illustrate that this way. Let me just kind of draw this out and help you see what I'm, what I'm going for. This last Friday night, we had a, uh, uh, well, we didn't have, the school had a fall festival. And as has been our practice, several of us go and we volunteer at the school to, to man the, the games and hand out candy and, you know, just ensure that the kids have a good time. I would suggest that if you ask the kids what they, what, what they, they, so, what they appreciated most about that event, none of them would come back to you and say, I am so glad people started meeting months before to plan this event to make it available for us to have on that night. I would suggest every one of them would talk about the, game, the games, the candy, the fun, the parade, you know, the events of the night. They would, they would talk about the, 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 the ways that they interacted and enjoyed the evening. Many of them probably wouldn't stop to be grateful for the volunteers that showed up hours before and start setting things up. Many of them wouldn't even think about that this started really months ago. 
Well, we don't want to dismiss that, that, that there's a real, real enjoyment, that there's a real opportunity to appreciate and enjoy that event, right? We don't want to dismiss that. But how much more can it be appreciated? How much more can we enjoy it when we realize that there is much more going on than our little piece of the puzzle? I mean, how much more could we appreciate the picture that the puzzle presents if we had more than just two or three pieces to slap into place? But we could see the whole picture. But we don't want to dismiss those most intimate moments. Jesus didn't dismiss those most intimate moments in the work of salvation. When he healed the blind man, he highlighted the blind man's faith. He didn't dismiss the, the, the way that this blind man entered in. He didn't dismiss the importance and the vital nature of faith. But that's not the only story of salvation we get to study. And in fact, I think that, this, that the reason Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, follows immediately after is to help us see that salvation is much more than just our faith and repentance. In it, we get to see the sovereign working of our God. A God who is mindful of us. A God who's concerned and cares for us. Not just in our physical need, but in our spiritual need. The truth is, I think that this story of Zacchaeus is really told to let us see the work of God in salvation. We're going to see him exercise faith. We're going to see him exercise repentance. But we're going, to, we're going to meet a Jesus who does the work to seek and to save the lost. Let's read the passage and then we'll work our way through it. Luke 19, beginning in, verses one, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll work our way through verse 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. If you're short, this is your passage. Like this is, if you've ever needed a verse for you, this is your passage, right? Jesus loves short people. There's more to it than that. But he's short in stature. He can't see the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to, to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And probably every one of you know this story. Even if you have not read it in the scripture before, you probably heard the little song that kids sing, right? In fact, I'm so used to singing the song, I almost wanted to sing it as I was reading the passage. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I'm not a worship leader, so don't, you get what you get. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said... What did he say? You come down, for I'm going to your house today. See, we know that song. We, we know the story. We, we, we understand it. We, it's a great story of Jesus saving this man, of Zacchaeus being saved. Wouldn't it be an amazing testimony to be, be, be the one walking around saying, Hey, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I climbed up in a tree, and he called me down, and he wanted to come to my house. That's so amazing. But we have to be careful. If we're not careful, we'll look at all the ways that Zacchaeus expended his effort. We'll look at all the ways, all the things that Zacchaeus did to bridge the gap between him and Jesus. All the ways he tried to overcome the insurmountable odds. And we'll miss the fact that the only reason Zacchaeus met Jesus was because Jesus sought Zacchaeus. You see, the story starts, and Zacchaeus hears about Jesus coming. 
The crowds are surrounding this man. He's, he's got to be asking what's going on. Who is it that's coming into Jericho? The crowds had been following Jesus. We, we studied it last week. The crowds were so thick around him as he was moving around the region of Jericho that even a blind man heard this large crowd and had to ask what's going on. So this large crowd is with Jesus and Zacchaeus is like, what, what's happening? Who, who is that? Somebody has to tell him. I mean, he has to come to this knowledge some way. But when he tries to get to Jesus, he's a short guy. He's a small guy. He's not just short, but he's petite. But he seeks, in fact, if you look at it, it says he seeks to see Jesus. Now, we don't know what was driving this desire. We have no idea what was the the motive behind this desire seeking to see Jesus. It could have been that he's just starstruck. I mean, Jesus had a reputation, right? People knew Jesus all over the region of Israel, all over Galilee and, and Judea. They, they knew who Jesus was. His reputation had been, had been being spoken about. And it could have been just like being star tra- starstruck. So like when I worked out at the airport, I worked at uh, the General Aviation uh, Complex. It was, it's the place where all the private people, the private jets fly in, you know, people with lots of money and wealth and they have their own jets or their companies have their own jets and they, they land and they, they're taken care of apart from all the commercial traffic. And so periodically, Brad Pitt would fly in. Back in the day, it was with Angela, no, back in the day, it was Jennifer Aniston. I did that first service too. Back in the day, it was Jennifer Aniston. And, and if they came in, like there was crowds of people standing out on the ramp, people who worked at the airport, people who would show up just to see them, like the people crowding around hoping to see Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Later on, it was Angelina Jolie. I don't know who he brings home with him now. Um, maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you could look it up. But it doesn't really matter. People would gather to see him because he was famous. He's a star. And they're starstruck. Maybe that's what's going on with Zacchaeus. Maybe, maybe Zacchaeus is just a guy. He's like, man, I've heard of these amazing miracles. I, I would love to see him. I, I would love to see him do it. I'd love to see him make a lame man able to walk. Like, I'd love to be able to see a guy who's paralyzed be told to get up and walk, and he'd get up and walk. I'd love to see a man whose arms shriveled up grow and, and, and be given strength. I mean, who wouldn't love to see that? To be able to see a blind man be given sight. Like, literally, he was in the dark, and all of a sudden, he's now standing in the light. Who wouldn't want to see that? We don't really know what his desire was. We don't really know the motive behind his seeking to see Jesus. Maybe, maybe he had heard of the compassion that Jesus had on men like him. Jesus, or or, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The chief tax collector. Like he's not just the guy on the street sitting in the booth taking the taxes. He's the guy in charge of all those tax collectors who's taking a cut from all those people. He's the lowest of the low. Make no mistake about it. He understood how his people saw him. He understood his position in that culture. And yet Jesus, Jesus, this man who people were saying was a prophet. This man who people were saying was the Messiah, one of his closest followers, was a tax collector. His name is Matthew. Maybe it was the compassion of Christ that compelled him. Maybe it was the starstruck idea. Maybe, maybe like Peter, that something had been revealed to him from above. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. But everything stood in his way. Everything was keeping him from Jesus. He's a small man. He he couldn't push his way through the crowd. He didn't have the strength. He didn't have the presence. He didn't have the capability to make his way through. Jesus was just on the other side of the crowd, but he might as well have been miles away. In in, in Zacchaeus' perspective, he might as well not even walked into Jericho because Zacchaeus couldn't see him. It's almost as if the crowd wasn't giving him space because Zacchaeus was a tax collector and they had no respect for him. Hey, not only are you short and a bother to me, but you're a tax collector. Go away from me. 
He's known for his dishonesty, for his cheating and stealing, for, own, for his own personal gain. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the Jewish culture. They were traitors to their own people because they were representatives. They were Jewish people that had become representatives of the Roman government. And not only did they take taxes to give to the Romans, but then they would increase the taxes dishonestly, more than was necessary, and then they would keep what was extra. And it just so happens that Zacchaeus was at the pinnacle of that pyramid just before the Romans. Like, he wasn't just the guy taking the taxes. He was the guy taking the taxes from all the tax collectors. So he was not the, he was not the drug dealer on the street. He was the, the head of the cartel that made sure the drugs were on the street so that he could make his money. So he was a piece of the puzzle that made the burden of taxes that much greater on the Jewish people. Because he expected his cut from the tax collectors. The tax collectors expected their cut from the Jews. Who do you think was suffering? The Jews. And because of that, he was, he was rich, but he wasn't respected. He was, he was a man of position and power, but nobody cared about him. And so when he seeks to see Jesus, nobody's making room for him. And in a way that he didn't even realize... He was separated from Jesus simply because he was rich. I think it's interesting that, 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 that Luke determines to point this out. Just two passages, two or three passages after Jesus has met with another rich ruler. The rich ruler, you know the story. If, if you've been following along with us, you know the story. The rich ruler uh, comes to Jesus, says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through some commandments with him. The guy's like, oh, I've been keeping all the commandments. Like, I've been perfectly obedient which we know is not true. But Jesus says, okay, one more thing. Sell all your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor, come and follow me. Like, leave everything, come and follow me. The man loved his money more than he loved Jesus. He desired his wealth more than he desired Jesus. He hangs his head in sadness, and he walks away. And out of that, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And everybody's stunned by that. Everybody's like, whoa, well, well, then who can be saved? See, the reality is, is that Zacchaeus was a man who desired money. He desired wealth. He desired power and position. He was willing to become a traitor to his people. He was willing to deal with the shame and the negative perspectives. He was willing to put up with whatever he had to deal with. He, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed in, in worship. He wouldn't have been allowed. His testimony wasn't even acceptable in court. But he didn't care because he loved his wealth. And see, all of these kind of help us understand the distance between Zacchaeus and Jesus, they help us to see the inner, insurmountable barriers, the insurmountable obstacles. Zacchaeus, he, he was just separated by feet from Jesus. But he couldn't get to Jesus. The reality is that Zacchaeus is lost. Now see, this, this, when, you, when you bring it all together, when you put it all together, Zacchaeus is the lost man that Jesus references at the final words, at, at, at that final analysis where, where Zacchaeus, all this happened and everything's come together. Jesus says, the son of man, that's him, he, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost is Zacchaeus. And the word isn't speaking about like he doesn't know which direction to turn, left or right. It's not like he's in a maze and can't find his way out. The word is the same word that's translated in other places as destruction or perishing. This lostness is a reality of being cut off from God. In fact, the same word is used in John 3.16. And it's translated as perish. For God so loved the world, whosoever, that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not be lost, but have everlasting life. Zacchaeus was cut off 
Zacchaeus didn't have a relationship with God. Zacchaeus didn't have an identity in Christ. Zacchaeus didn't have identity among God's people. Zacchaeus was being destroyed. Zacchaeus was headed for destruction. Zacchaeus was in the process of perishing. And we see it because he loved his wealth. He was a cheat. He was dishonest. He, he, he was not compassionate or caring about his own people. The truth was, the truth is, Zacchaeus was, was as distant from God as anyone possibly could be, even though he was just standing feet from him. And the best he could do the best plan he could come up with was run down the street and climb up a tree and look down on the man and see his face but not have any connection or any relationship. You see, the thing is, is that what we see happen in this passage is exactly what Jesus said would happen when he faced that rich young ruler. What was impossible with man in being saved is possible with God. What Zacchaeus couldn't do, Jesus could. But this isn't just good news for Zacchaeus. This is good news for all of us, whether we like to admit it or not, whether we want to, to own it or not. We are just like Zacchaeus. Apart from Christ, we are lost. We are perishing. We are heading towards destruction when we can't do anything about it. We aren't strong enough. We aren't capable enough. We are too small in stature, too short to see him. There's nothing we can do. And try it. You'll find yourself in a, a rotation or a cycle of failure upon failure. Obey all the commandments and make your way to heaven. You'll sin again because we are incapable of living in perfection. We aren't pure enough. Our sin continues to find us out. It continues to keep us distant. It continues to drive wedges between us and God. We read it just a minute ago in 1 John as, as Matt was reading it. That the reality is, is that if, if, we make, if, if we walk in sin, we cannot have fellowship with God and, and, and fellowship with each other. Whether we like to admit it or not, we don't love him enough. Calvin talks about this in terms of idolatry. He's talking about that. He, he, he says something along the lines of that our hearts are idol factories. We're always building something. We're always establishing something that we love more than Christ. For Zacchaeus, it was his wealth. For us, it could be wealth. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It could be relationships. That we love another person and desire another person more than we desire Christ. Maybe it's something intangible like approval from people. And just to be honest, I struggle with that one. I long to be liked. And if I'm honest, I long to be liked more than I long for Christ. I don't know what it is that you raise up that you put before Jesus. But I don't doubt that your heart is any different than mine. Apart from Christ, we are lost. We are perishing. We are in the midst of. We are in the process of being destroyed. And the good news is this, that like Zacchaeus, we are exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to seek and to save. 
He came to seek and to save the lost. He came seeking us. Jesus seeks the lost before the lost ever seek him. You you can look at this and it's such an amazing way. The way the the scriptures work out and the way God has put them together. You can see it. So, So the story opens and Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. And we don't know what his reasoning is. We don't have any understanding of what what his desire is in that. We just simply know he's seeking Jesus. And then by the time we come to the end of the story, we begin to see in verse 10 that Jesus was actually seeking Zacchaeus. Jesus was actually seeking him. I mean, and we could you know, have the argument, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I don't know, but I do know. Jesus wouldn't have even been in Jericho. This is a divine appointment. God has planned from before the foundations of the world that this moment would happen. You can even see it here as Jesus walks up to that tree. As he walks up to that tree, Zacchaeus doesn't call out. We have no indication that he's making his presence known at all. But Jesus stops and he looks up at him and calls him by name. Jesus already knew him. Jesus already was ready for him. He's like, Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. No, he says, I must. He doesn't say, I want to. He doesn't say, I'd like to. He doesn't say, it'd be awful cool if I got to see where you live. He said, I must. And that, and that word must demonstrates to us this, this is more than just some happenstance. Commentator after commentator point out that this the, the, the word must is a divine appointment. It's a divine necessity. God had always been planning on this moment. Before Jesus walked into Jericho, he was planning to stop and invite himself to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus is always seeking us before we ever think to seek him. He's always worked this way. And when we come to know God, I mean, we, we focus in on the point of where we repent and place our faith in him, where we repent of sin, when we turn from our sin, quit trusting in the things of the world and begin to trust in him. Or we focus in on that time, on that experience. But as we begin to mature, it doesn't take long before you begin to see that there was something going before you ever said, I trust him. And we see it. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Paul writing to the, to the church in Rome. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So foreknowledge, there's an intimate knowledge. So, so he knew Zacchaeus' name before he showed up and talked to Zacchaeus. So he didn't have to ask. He just shows up and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. You're the one I'm here for. He foreknew him. He predestined him to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you realize that we're seeing all but the glorification piece of these happen right here with Zacchaeus? He's going to call him. He's going to justify him. He's going to call him uh, into relationship. And then he's going to call him or pronounce him innocent. He's going to pronounce him righteous. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with Zacchaeus. This is what Jesus has always been doing. This is how God has always worked. Another time, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, writing about all the spiritual blessings that we enjoy, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He then writes... In verses 4 through 6, explaining what those spiritual blessings are, he says, even as he chose us in him, even as he chose us, elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He chose us with this purpose in mind that you would be holy, that you would be distinct and separate from the world, that you would be blameless, that you would not be, be known by your sin any longer. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, we don't meet Jesus because we seek him out. We meet Jesus because he seeks us. 
Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can go about this, and, and I want to be honest about it. I mean, there's a reality. There's, there's two or three different ways that people approach this perspective of predestining and, 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 and electing. There, there's one way that says, oh, I just don't understand it, so I'm not going to have anything to do with it, right? So they ignore these passages in the Bible. They just run past them, and they act like they don't exist. Then there's the view that God knows what you'll do. He knows your works before you get there, and he responds to that. I think that's too close to me earning my salvation. So I hold the view that God is sovereignly electing, not based on who I am, but based on who he is. He elects because he's an electing God. He's a choosing God. Now, you don't have to agree with me. I'm just telling you that's where I stand. But regardless of how you want to approach the election, regardless of how you want to seek his seeking. The reality is, is the scripture is clear time and time again. Jesus seeks the lost before the lost ever seek him. He is seeking you before you ever thought of him. He knew your name. And the word tells us that he doesn't just know our name, but he knows us intimately. He knows our deepest desires and our strongest fears. He knows the, the, the number of hairs upon our head. He knows the number of the days of our life. We were knit together in our mother's womb. In all the days of our life, it says in Psalm 139, all the days of our life, he knows them before there is one of them. God has known you and he has been seeking you. And if you know him, if you are seeking him, it is because he sought you. And Jesus seeks the lost before the lost ever seek him. And Jesus seeks the lost and calls us into relationship with him. Lots of people were seeking to see Jesus that day. Like there was a crowd with him, Right? There's all kind of people. We, 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 we don't know who all they were. We, we know that many of them were, were, were of Jewish perspective, Jewish descent, and they, they, they didn't like Zacchaeus, and they didn't like Jesus going to eat at Zacchaeus' house. There were lots of people there that day seeking to see Jesus. And I think, I think it would be wrong to assume that Zacchaeus is the only one Saved. Like, we don't get to see every event. We don't get to see every story unfold. In fact, if, if, they, if they wrote every story of every event, of every second of Jesus' day, we'd still have five or six years in Luke, and then the other Gospels, it would be a Bible unto itself, right? I mean, the reality is, is there's just too many stories. I think it's wrong to just automatically assume there's only the blind man before he comes into Jericho, and, the, and then Zacchaeus as he gets into Jericho, and that, I don't think we ought to make that assumption. But I don't think it's wrong to assume that there was a lot of people who sought Jesus who weren't sought by Jesus and who weren't called by Jesus. In fact, I think it's right to assume, based on the rest of the teaching of Scripture, that there's a lot of people who heard a general call, who knew about Jesus, who had heard the good things about Jesus, but didn't hear this effectual call. I must stay at your house. Come down so that I can be with you. Zacchaeus, don't stay distant. I am affirming my, my, my call, my desire for a relationship with you. I am letting you come into relationship with me. I am making it possible for you to come in and know me. J.C. Ryle writing about this, about this story. He says, if ever there was a soul sought and saved without having done anything to deserve it, that was the soul of Zacchaeus. Unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't calling out. Zacchaeus wasn't making a scene. Zacchaeus is sitting in the tree. Unasked, he offers himself to be the guest in the house of a sinner. Zacchaeus simply wanted to see who Jesus is. Like he just wanted to see him, lay his eyes on him. Jesus says, I'm going to stay at your place. Unasked, he sends into the heart of a publican the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of God before the day is out. Zacchaeus 
is told that salvation has come to him. Because Jesus has effectively called him. He has placed an effectual call on him. And let me just define that for you. From Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says this, that an effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So what what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus, come down. What does he do? Uh, I'm pretty comfortable up here. People are going to throw stones at me if I go down there. No, he comes down in a hurry. He senses the urgency. He wants to be near Christ. He wants Jesus to come and stay with him. And so he comes down and the scripture says it. says it. He says it received him joyfully. In verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He received Jesus, not grumbling, not concerned about what everybody else was thinking or saying. Joyfully celebrating, filled with happiness. This man wants me. He longs to have relationship with me. He longs to know me. And he longs for me to know him. The God who created all things. Brothers and sisters, get this, understand this. The God who said, let there be light, is the God who stepped into time and said, come to me. Come stay with me. Come and know me. It's his call, his effectual call upon us that enables our relationship with him. Apart from that, we're stuck in a tree looking down upon him from a distance. The best we can do, apart from an effectual call into relationship with Christ, is read and hear stories about and listen to everybody else's experience. Metaphorically, the best we can do is climb up in a tree and look on his face. But in our own power and by our own might, we cannot enter into relationship with him unless he calls us in to that relationship. Jesus seeks us first. Jesus calls us to himself. Jesus saves the lost by making us new. The thing is, is that Zacchaeus really was a sinner. (laughs) I mean, he was a sinful dude. And the money and the cheating, that was just probably a small piece of it. But man, we see it. Truth is, in in our day and age, he he really would be like like the pimp that sells women. He'd be like the racist bigot that hates others because of their ethnicity, he'd be, he'd be like the drug dealer on the street that's completely devoid of any care or compassion for anyone but filled with desire for his own, his, his own advancement, his own good. But by the end of the day, Zacchaeus is going to be a whole new man. All because Jesus sought him out, and called him, called him into relationship. See, rather, rather than Jesus being made dirty, rather than Jesus being made filthy, Zacchaeus was made clean. Now, you hear it. I mean, so, so, so the Jews, like everybody around, the immediate response is, he's going to the house of a sinner. And that's a big deal for them, because if he had gone into the house of a sinner, then, then he becomes dirty himself. He's no longer clean. He's no, no longer able to participate in the, in the, in the rituals and the, and the religious practice. The, the reality is, is that Zacchaeus was so dirty. He was in, in the eyes of the Jewish people, he was so dirty. His, his testimony wouldn't be received in court. He wouldn't be allowed to enter into the temple past the court of Gentiles. He couldn't practice. He couldn't, without some ritual cleansing and some effort on his part, he could not participate in Jewish culture. He just couldn't do it. And nobody would would enter into relationship with him. Nobody would come to him because the reality is is that his filthiness would rub rub off on them. But Jesus, Jesus is different. And we see this again time and time again. Luke, this isn't the first time Luke's shown us this. 
There's the boy who was being carried out of the city when Jesus, Jesus coming into the city. There's this little boy. I can't remember the name of the city. There's a little boy who's dead. and He's being carried on a funeral pyre to the place that he's going to be buried. And Jesus comes to him and he touches him. In Jewish culture, that would have made Jesus unclean. If that had been a rabbi, the rabbi wouldn't be allowed to go teach in the temple until he walked through the purification process. But rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the the, the dead boy is made alive. The, The woman who had the issue of blood for 19 years, she had been bleeding and she had been keeping it a secret. If anybody had known that she was bleeding, they would have shunned her away from crowds. But yet here she is in the middle of a crowd and she's just thinking, if I can just touch his robe, if I can just get close enough to touch the hem of his robe, People are bumping up against her, jostling up against her, and and unbeknownst to them, she's unclean. If they had known it, they they would know they had become unclean. But when she touches Jesus' robe, Jesus doesn't keep it a secret because he's scared people will think he's unclean. He announces it because the woman who was unclean had been cleansed. The leper... When he was still doing ministry in Galilee, the leper that was was coming to him and longed to be cleansed by him, the leper that he reached out and he touched. Jesus didn't become a leper. The leper got healed. And now in this moment, when he walks into this tax collector's house, rather than Jesus taking on that tax collector's sin, that tax collector takes on Jesus Christ's righteousness. He's made new. And Paul picks this idea up, and Paul teaches this idea to the church in Corinth. He writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are made something entirely different. We are made something entirely new. The old has passed away, and the new has come. It's not going to come, or may may come at some later point. The new has come. Come, in in, in coming into relationship with Christ, Christ is not ruined. We are made new. Christ has died and risen, but Christ is not killed again. We are made alive. We are made new. And because of this, Zacchaeus is completely rejuvenated, or or doctrinally we would say he's been um, regenerated. This man who was dead, It's given spiritual life. And now, because of that, he has new desires, he has new identities, and he has new priorities. His his new priorities are seen in the exercise of faith and repentance. Now, the words faith and repentance aren't used here, but they are expressed. The the, the man, he, he turns from his love of wealth. How do we know? Because what the rich ruler wouldn't do, Zacchaeus does. Half of what I own, I'm selling it, I'm giving it to the poor. And if I've, if I've cheated anyone, and that, that if is not like a, well, if I cheated somebody. It is known, it's a certainty, he cheated someone. And, and all of those people he cheated, he's going to pay them back four times over. I mean, this, he does not love his wealth anymore. He does not love himself enough to cling to his wealth. He's repentant. And how do we know he's exercising faith? Well, because when you turn from one thing, you obviously turn to another. But Jesus points out his faith in God, his faith in Christ. When he says, today salvation has come to this house since he is a son of Abraham. The reality is Jesus doesn't count the line of Abraham or count a person Jewish because of their bloodline. He counts them Jewish based on their faith. Paul, Paul makes the argument in Romans. starts off in Romans chapter 2, 28, verses 28 and 29. For no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcised outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. People are Jewish. The true Israel is not simply Israel simply because they were born in a line. They're Israel because of what God has done. And then Paul goes on to demonstrate that by faith we're being grafted together, that we're being made one people. 
the reality is, is that Jesus demonstrates, Jesus affirms his faith and repentance. Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' faith and repentance when he says, today salvation has come to this house. When we see, we see these new priorities, a, a turning from old priorities and a, and a commitment to new priorities, we, we see new desires. We see him no longer longing for selfish gain, but longing to be compassionate and to fight for justice. Probably no other time in his life had he been so willing to give to the poor, to look on the plight of poor people, to, 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 to those who are on the fringes, to those who are on the outskirts, and those who are overlooked by Jewish culture. But here he's willing to sell half of all he has. And he wants to fight for justice. He wants to fight for what's right. So he doesn't just say, hey, I won't cheat anyone again. He seeks to make restitution for the wrong he's done. The reality is, is it's not just giving away half his stuff. If we could count the number of people that he had taken from four times over. The only thing he doesn't do is say that he's going to quit his job. But he's, he's giving away massive amounts of wealth. He's turning from his sin. He's turning to trust in Christ. He's reprioritizing his life. And in this, he's given a new identity. No longer to be known as a sinner, but to be known as one who is saved. Imagine, imagine the scandal when the rest of the Jews found out what had happened at Zacchaeus' house that day. So what does this matter? What does it matter that Jesus is seeking us first? What does it matter that he's the one that calls us into relationship? What does it matter that he saves us by making us new, not by us reinventing ourselves? If we miss Jesus' place in this story, it makes it very difficult. makes it very difficult for us to really fully trust in Christ. There's a, there's a story we hear every year about a man who, who was really rich, who had everything he wanted, but then he had some dreams. And in the midst of his dreams, his conscience got the best of him, and he woke up the next morning, and he thought, I'm going to make it all right. So he started being generous with those people around him. Ebenezer Scrooge is a lot different than Zacchaeus. Ebenezer Scrooge doesn't even really exist, but Zacchaeus does. As hard as our consciences eat at us, if we do not recognize what God has done before we could do anything, it's going to make it very difficult for us to fully enjoy all that he has done. I'm not saying we can't be like those kids and just enjoy the moment, waiting for the day that he comes to get us. But how different will it be how much more joy it will fill our hearts to know that God has been seeking you. I don't think he uses calendar apps or anything like that. How much more joy does it give you to know that he made an appointment at a day and time in the history of his redemptive process that he would call you into a relationship with him? How much more rest can you reside in knowing that it's not dependent upon you seeking him out but on him seeking and saving you? This last year as I was in Africa in that village, uh, the most distant village we work in, uh, Kappa, sitting in a man's Compound, telling him again the stories of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And the man is excited. 
He loves to hear the stories. He loves to talk about them. But he just can't give up working to seek his own redemption. See, in the Islamic tradition, in the Islamic faith, there's five pillars, five things that they have to do. I can't remember them all, uh, but, but there's prayers, uh, pr- prayers, there's giving of alms, visiting a Mecca, things like that. And the thing is, is that even if they do them to the best of their ability, they have no assurance. So they carry the weight of this effort. They carry the weight of all the insurmountable obstacles in front of them. They carry the weight of, of the need to get to God on their own. And this year, as we talked with him, and we've had a number of conversations with him. I'm not the only one. There's been plenty of people that talked with him. But I've had enough conversations that I was able to enter into just a a comparison. And we laid it out. And And we talked about the things that he had to do with no assurance of salvation. And we contrasted that against the reality that Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And I asked him, if this is true, what would it mean for you? He kind of slumped, not in a bad way, like he just, you could just see something happen. I, he just, there was a physical response in his body. And he's like, that would be rest. The work is done. He's always been doing it. He has been pursuing you before you ever thought to pursue him. He sought you out. He called you by name. He's the one that secures your relationship. He's the one that seals you to the time and place in which he calls you home. He's the one that's making this all possible. If we just stop and step back from salvation and our fight to believe, what rest we can enjoy and what joy we'll have in fighting to believe. You see, the good news is this. Before we ever were seeking Jesus, Jesus is seeking us. And he's seeking us to save us. Not for this moment, but forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your work on our behalf. Thank you for not turning your back and walking away. Thank you for not letting us reside in lostness. Would you move on us? Would you fill our hearts and minds in this moment? Would you encourage us with the truth of your power to save? Would you fill us with the assurance that we reside in you because you reside in us. Father, I I would ask that this be more than just some doctrine or some, some theological perspective for us or some information that some guy spouted out. But would your spirit use your word to transform our hearts, leading us into a greater, deeper, more joy-filled relationship with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.